This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. In some ways, we'd like to pretend 2020 didn't happen. It did. It hasn't been easy. It's going to have long-lasting impacts and effects. But you'd like to pretend that it just didn't happen. We get reminders, though, from the Olympics. We get reminders from Euro 2020. The 2020 was a thing. In some ways, it just had to be put off for a while. The Olympics are coming, and we'll have Tokyo 2020 in 2021. And right now, Euro 2020 is happening in 2021 in various locations in Europe. Uh, At least one location where our next guest would have been if 2020 had been a much different year. Greg Brady joins us from 640 Toronto on Global News Radio. Greg, where would you have been if this had been last year and a pandemic had not begun to unfold? Got to rub the salt in the wounds to start it off, huh? You just like that? I I do. I I mean, you know, the eight years of broadcasting OHL games and watching the London Knights lose like three out of the 38 that I broadcast wasn't rough enough. Now this, okay, fine, I'm over that part. But you're right. I had tickets last year for um, matches in London. I would have been at England-Croatia on Sunday. Here's what's weird. Yesterday, uh, you know, in in a match that I'm sure electrified the entire uh, globe, uh, Slovakia beat Poland. Um, 2-1, although that's a bit of a surprise. And Robert Lewandowski is a world-class striker and plays for Poland. They moved that from Dublin, Ireland, to St. Petersburg. So if we're, if we're using the time-space continuum, I would have traveled from London to Dublin, and maybe even today I'd be on my way to Amsterdam to see the Dutch play in Amsterdam, um, where I went actually for Euro 2000 as well, and they would play Austria on Thursday. My biggest worry in 2000 was missing my uh, eighth-grade son Noel's graduation. And as it turned out, I didn't have to worry about either event taking place. So that's weird. <laughs> neither neither thing happened. And, and so I missed them both, but not for lack of trying to miss them both, if that makes sense. Now, if this was last year, was the plan to have it in this many different locations? Yeah, and I, I hated it. Um, I hate the concept of it. I think the idea was... Uh, it, it's the uh, it, it's you know an anniversary. It's a uh, anniversary of of the Euros, forty years, and they said let let's share it amongst twelve countries. And as you know, Mike, usually it's one country hosting. It's the very first time I went over it was around the time we were in school together, and I went to England. It was the very first time I went to uh, I went to the United Kingdom uh, when when England was hosting Euro '96. But then the next year, Belgium and Holland split it, and one of the years Austria and Switzerland split it. And uh, and it's a little like how we're going to split. You know, we'll get we won't we won't exactly get a big share of the pie. But when we have the World Cup in 2026 in Canada, which is beyond exciting. And uh, to be honest, we're going to have one of the best teams we've ever had. We might even qualify for Qatar uh, through the front door. We have a big game in Haiti uh, tonight. That's about the only time I'll use the word we when mentioning a sports team is Canadian soccer. So it shows you where my allegiances are. But yeah, I hated the idea because if you're going to follow your team, how are you going to pull this off? And now post-pandemic, it was complicated enough pre-pandemic. Let me give you an example. If uh, the team that wins Group B, which is all in all likelihood going to be Belgium, in the playoffs, if you will, the, the knockout round, they would travel from Seville, Spain, to Munich, Germany, to London, England, all in the span of nine days. And that's not like, say, the 94 World Cup was, 
where you'd have teams playing in Giant Stadium and then down to Florida and then back up the seaboard to Philadelphia. But nonetheless, it's a lot of travel, and it's under, obviously, extremely tense uh, and extenuating circumstances. Some of these players aren't vaccinated. We found that out yesterday about Christian Erickson after what happened Saturday um, and when the, I think the whole world, sports and otherwise, just stopped because of that incident in that Denmark-Finland match. But it always had its complexities. I thought it was a stupid idea to allow fans to sort of gather and, uh, and watch their teams, and you don't have that same sense of community that when it's in a few major cities. Well, we did hear from Christian Erickson today, so that at least is good news that he is alert in hospital and recording videos to tell everybody how he's doing. Greg Brady joining us from Global News Radio 640 Toronto as we look at Euro 2020, which is on now, and that was certainly a moment when, like you say, the sports world stopped. We haven't seen any real upsets so far. We've seen the longest goal scored. I think mm-hmm. that was pulled off yesterday uh, <laughs> in terms of distance, but everything seems to be going according to plan. Is that a shock in any way? Well, by the way, that goal, I, I mean, Toronto Maple Leaf fans will recognize that as a Vesa Toscola. Uh, Mike, that's <laughs> something. There were just so many of those 173-foot uh, <laughs> goals. I think Brendan Witt of the Islanders scored one on on young Vesa uh, at the time that was, but the, the, unlike Vesa Tosco, the goalie wasn't the goalie was up near near the center line and nowhere near the net uh, in that Scotland match. Um, so yeah, the surprises here's the teams that are expected to do well so far have had Portugal just an hour or so ago got drawn uh, by Hungary and they scored three goals in the last six minutes before an extra injury time and Cristiano Ronaldo had two of them. But until they broke that open and won 3-0, Hungary was the better side for a good chunk of the second half. And and it's a little, to me, it's a little like the Stanley Cup playoffs. You've got some wiggle room in a tournament like this not to get off to the greatest start, but halfway through, you better be be playing your best soccer. Portugal, as an example, um, when I went to France in 2016, I saw them play um, in in, uh, their second match uh, against Austria, and they were really listless. They didn't have it together. But the fingers snapped, and they got it together once the knockout stage began. So it, it's, I think Spain was a little disappointing yesterday, I would say. After your show, they drew uh, Sweden. And Sweden's good, should be the second-best team in that group. But that was a little surprising to see Spain, who's a little down, not score. Now, there's a match coming up uh, between France and Germany. That's the, so we'll have seen everybody once by 5 o'clock today, Eastern time. And they're in the uh, vaunted uh, group of death, uh, where Portugal and Hungary also are. And I think Germany's a little bit down. So you know how it is when you think the teams that were good in sports when you were a kid, like the Dallas Cowboys and the Montreal Canadiens, you think they're always Yankees. They're always going to be good. I think that way about Germany and and, uh, and Spain and football in soccer. And I don't think they're that good this time around. I don't think either can win the tournament. I think there's only three or four teams that can, but they're not two of the three or four. We've got a lot of Portugal fans in London who are excited about their win. We've got a lot of German soccer fans who are waiting to see what happens against France. We've got a lot of Italian and British soccer fans in this city as well. How do you think Italy and England stack up against Germany and France? And and people throw Belgium into that mix now, don't they? Yeah, Belgium has, has what this is called a golden generation of players with Aiden Hazard, who played at Chelsea forever, Kevin De Bruyne, who's the main man at Manchester City, uh, which was the best team all year long in the Premier League, um, at least after the first month or so, and and he's fantastic. But it's believed that they've got this tournament or next next fall 
uh, in Qatar at the World Cup to finally get it done. England had a group like that with Wayne Rooney and Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard and and uh, Ashley Cole. They had to they had to win, and of course they didn't. So it ends up being a bit of a disappointing um, result. You ask about England and Italy. I know I'm probably considered a bit of an, an England homer, but that said, this is by far the best group they've had at a at a championship at a major tournament. Oh, maybe since 1996, even when they went to the semis against Germany, when Jurgen Klinsmann was still playing, that almost came up by surprise. I think it's the best group that they've had since 1990 when they went to the World Cup semifinals. So they're going to be great this time around, uh, next World Cup and the next Euros, uh, which are now in three years, obviously not four because of the delay, in Germany in 2024. They're really, really good. And, uh, and I think a second England team, could actually do well this tournament we always talk about that with canada and the olympics right or the world cup you could put a second canada team together and they'd finish top four it doesn't mean england's going to win because it's single elimination and it's tricky italy okay your your italian based listeners this is the only time when you can bring ethnicity into a conversation anymore so i'm happy to you italians out there listening you're a little overrated you just are there's some nice players there's no superstars there's no star keeper anymore, and I know they beat Turkey 3-0 uh, to start the tournament off, But uh, and I think they have an easy group, so I think Italy's going to have their chest puffed out. They'll be driving up and down London Street, honking their horns with their flags, and I like that. I like that enthusiasm, but I, 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 don't, I don't see them as a team that will even make the semifinals at the end of the day. I think they're, I think they're an older group without any magic. Hmm. Yeah, and... trouble, eh? Yeah. The, yeah, they 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 had a nice three nil win at the beginning, but I, I think you've got to remember you're, you're playing Turkey, right? You are playing Turkey. Uh, yes, it, that that first game we tend to read a lot into it. Um, like Scotland, for example, I thought was better than their two nil loss to the Czech Republic because of that uh, Toskala s goal. So I I actually think they should feel a little emboldened by how they'll play against England later this week or or against Croatia. Uh, Croatia was a finalist at at the last World Cup. But I think they're a little down. I, they haven't made much changes. And so much of international sport, look, you, you know, you and I love our hockey. Um, and you do weigh that sometimes. Are you getting too experimental with the lineup? Are you, are you too old without mixing in the young? That was a lot of the criticism of the first Canada team then went to Nagano. It's like we got too many of the old guard there, including Wayne Gretzky, to be fair, uh, who, and, and Steve Eiserman, guys who, you know, Gretzky at the very minimum, retired a year later. There were a couple guys out of the sport two or three years later, and there were younger players um, that they potentially could have gone with. So it's, it's always a great debate, but that's why I think teams like, I think England, Belgium, France are the only three teams that can win the tournament. I really do. Portugal has to play much better than today, but they're, they're probably more skilled than they were five years ago when they won. So um, it's so fun, and uh, you can imagine being here in Toronto. I know London has its pockets, too. It's so fun to be in Canada because the tournament's prominent. People drive around. Thank God patios opened last weekend, and a good patio has got a couple good TVs set up uh, primarily to watch these games over the next couple weeks. The flags are already flying around the city. Greg, thanks so much for chatting about it. We'll have to chat about it when it gets a little deeper in. Okay, I hope my uh, my Italian uh, uh, fans uh, and and listeners and supporters uh, do forgive me someday. Uh, you will rise again. We all do. Italian fans are some of the most knowledgeable fans. I, I think they know what they have, and I think they know what they're hoping for. Thanks, pal. Take care. That is Greg Brady from Global News Radio six forty Toronto talking about Euro twenty twenty as it takes place in all kinds of locations. 
many years ago, you could buy a house, and the cost was not in six digits. Hmm. You can probably buy a house right now in some places where the cost is not six digits, but you would need to do a lot of remodeling, and you would not want it to be cold. So where are we sitting when it comes to affordability of putting a roof over our heads? If you are somebody who has a house that you own, you're building up equity. You're watching that property value rise. It has been a good investment. Real estate has tended to be a good investment. Mark Twain always said, buy real estate. They're not making any more of it. So what do we do now as we watch, not just around here, but around the globe, prices rise to a point that if you do not have a house that you own, you wonder, how will I ever afford one? We're watching rent go from lower levels to much higher levels in many big cities. And there is no good answer. But there is somebody that has done a lot to at least educate us, tell us what's been happening how this has happened. If we go back, and this is a little bit of history, we go back to November of 2016. What was the average house price in November of 2016? I'm willing to bet it wasn't up over $500,000. In fact, I know it wasn't. But November of 2016, you had a filmmaker by the name of Frederick Gerton. He'd won all kinds of awards. And he decided to contact Leilani Farah, who was then the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing. And what they did was they put together a feature-length documentary called Push. And it came out a couple of years after that, so a couple of years ago. And Leilani is the star of the documentary, and she looks around at cities around the world and looks at their unaffordability. This is back in 2016. And not just when you're purchasing a home or purchasing a house or purchasing a condo. We're talking about unaffordability at all levels. Renting, buying, everything. Because housing has often been called a fundamental human right. If you want to be safe, if you want to have a good shot at being healthy... Housing is key. But all over the world, it's getting harder. And even people who had housing in parts of the world, as it's outlined in PUSH, even people who had housing sometimes fell victim to the fact that they weren't in, say, a rent-controlled building. In the United States, in a number of other countries, you don't have rent control. So if a landlord wants to say... Yeah, you know, you've been giving me $1,000 a month for rent. I'm going to need a whole lot more. And you're left to say, I have two choices. Pay the money or find somewhere else to live. So what are we dealing with now? How are things now? Joining us right now happens to be Leilani Farah, who is the global director of the shift. Leilani, it is great to speak with you again. Likewise, Mike. Happy to be here. 
let's kind of go back through the experience of making push first and and what you think back about now because it's been out for a few years it has had a tremendous reception so congratulations on that but when you think back about it what still stands out in your mind well to be honest when i was approached about making the film and whether i would be willing to be followed around for a couple of years by the filmmaker and his crew I had a sense that this was a really important issue. I'd been working on it myself. I I just felt it was really starting to dominate. I, at the time, really didn't know how central this issue was going to become. I certainly couldn't have predicted a pandemic, which has, in fact, made the issues raised in push even more uh, pressing. So when I look back, I was a little bit naive. I was like, yeah, let's make this film. It's super important. Now I realize, oh, my gosh, that was such a good decision because it it really is super important. When you look at at kind of the things that you learned that maybe, you know, because you had a great knowledge of, of what was happening in housing and, and how unaffordable it was in some countries. But the thing you the things that you learned then that maybe struck you the most, what would you point to? I I was struck by the fact that this is a global phenomenon. The 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 fact that the actors, the financial actors that are investing in real estate in cities around the world They are global actors, and so the pattern is playing itself out globally. So, you know, I was shocked when I landed in South Korea, for example, realized they have the third largest or fourth largest pension fund in the world, realized that that pension fund was, in fact, giving their money to a private equity firm that was going to be investing in residential real estate and pricing people out of the market. And, like, there I was in Korea, and then I'm, I'm in Chile, and, and this, a similar pattern is unfolding with deep roots in, in the Pinochet regime. I mean, I, I just had no idea sort of how deep this was and how in fact truly global it was we often think about oh london england vancouver and hong kong as these hot markets and i mean i i was just finding it everywhere the same pattern everywhere so that was i think the most surprising leilani farha joining us global director of the shift leilani when we are looking at how this happens you mentioned a pension fund that is then investing we would not be thinking at any point that housing prices or or housing would be something that would have shareholders how common is that yeah that's it's very common it is in fact part of uh, one of the sort of financial instruments that we use to um purchase residential real estate, particularly en masse, so a lot of units all at once or several apartment buildings all at once. What's used is a thing called a real estate investment trust. And those um, are often um, public. And so they end up um, with shareholders. And those shareholders are pension funds, insurance companies, uh, and sometimes individuals of ultra high net worth. But it is this big institutional money that goes into real estate investment trusts 
that buy up these these units. And and real estate investment trusts are very active in Canada. Actually, that's that's something that's come to light. Um, kind of more recently, they've been extremely active during the pandemic, which is deeply worrying. Um, so, you know, scooping up apartment buildings in Toronto and in Vancouver and in Montreal and elsewhere. Uh, and that's what they do. They, 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 they're publicly traded on the, on the stock market. One of the so companies that you that, point... Imagine that, Mike. Imagine you're living in your apartment and it's actually being publicly traded on the stock market. Hmm. Yeah, you can go and see what it's worth today. Not that that's going to give you any sense of security. One of the companies you talk about a lot is Blackstone. And not long ago, Denmark's housing minister tried to kind of take on Blackstone. How did that go? Yeah, really interesting. I'm glad you know about that, Mike. That's pretty cool. So um, Denmark uh, was really um, confronting Blackstone's business model. So Blackstone had moved into Copenhagen and was purchasing many units in a particular neighborhood. And a newly elected minister uh, responsible for housing really realized that this was a problem. Push the film had had its world premiere in Copenhagen. Um, and I had done a whole bunch of media around that. And so the minister was and, and he'd actually come. He hadn't been elected yet, but he'd come to a, a screening of Push. So he was well aware of the issue. So when he got into the position, he thought, you know what, I'm going to try to defend our housing market against these guys. So he developed a law that actually is known as the Blackstone Lex or law. And basically what he did was he created conditions that were unattractive to an investor like Blackstone. So what he did was he said in this legislation that, yeah, sure, Blackstone, you can come on in and purchase buildings, but you're not going to be able to renovate and recoup so-called, your expenditures until five years or more later. And that's really not good for the, the Blackstone type of business model where they buy, they do cosmetic renovations, and they jack up the rents really quickly. And so it has staved off uh, Blackstone in, in Copenhagen and other cities in, in Denmark. Interesting. We're talking with yeah. Leilani Farha, Global Director of The Shift, and... You can go and find Push, the film, the documentary, and you can have a look at, at how this goes. But the idea that we've got housing that can be publicly traded, that companies like Blackstone will buy up these buildings, they'll fix them up, they'll jack up the rents where they don't have rent control getting in the way. What do we know going forward? If, if this has maybe worked in Denmark is there a sense in trying to fight it with strategies like this? Or is this just something that is going to happen because big corporations want it to happen? Well, you raise a good point. I mean, I think governments need to be more active on this front, recognize that, uh, and not just in, in Canada, but other countries too, that these financial actors are very active and that they really need to be regulated, that tenants need protection. Um, and one of the vehicles, I, I mentioned real estate investment trusts. The reason that's used in this uh, housing market is because they have very preferential tax status. And so, I mean, governments could just simply eliminate that preferential tax 
status of real estate investment trusts or REITs, as we call them. And that would definitely curb the REIT activity. Um, there's lots of things governments can do and I really think must do because the bottom line is that housing is a fundamental human right and these actors are not um, appreciating what that means. Affordability, security of tenure, those are key aspects of the human right to housing. And governments are responsible for making sure people can have um, enjoyment of the right to housing. So they have to start regulating these actors. But I will say it's not easy. They are entrenched in our economy and they have tremendous power because they have so much liquidity and financial power behind them. So for governments to take them on is not easy. I recognize that. But it's it's a real must, especially given that most countries and most cities are suffering a housing crisis. Leilani, if they don't do that, what are we going to be faced with? Higher and higher rents, higher and higher prices? Yeah, I think that's right. And what we're what we're going to be faced with is low-income renters, uh, low-income populations that tend to be racialized will be driven out of our city centres. It's already happening. I mean, go to San Francisco and try to find a barista at your favourite independent or multinational coffee shop that lives in San Francisco. Impossible. They all live very, very far away. So we're talking long commutes, not good for the environment, not good for one's health. The pandemic has shown us that many of us actually really like working close to uh, home. And uh, um, obviously, we're not building the kind of society that we want. And frankly, it's resulting in increasing levels of homelessness. Look at the encampment problem across this country. I mean, people are really struggling to stay housed in a, in, and to find affordable housing. And eviction because of a rent increase can lead quite quickly to homelessness. Is that the kind of city or society we, we want to live in? I think most of us would say no. We want everyone to be adequately housed. So the only chance we have is if governments step in and step up and start regulating these actors. We're talking with Leilani Farah, who is the global director of The Shift and was also the person who you saw in the documentary Push. And you can also catch Leilani's podcast, which is called Pushback Talks, and you can find out all kinds of information as this continues on. Have we seen any other governments outside of Denmark maybe try and do this or, or are you hearing that any others are talking about maybe approaching and saying okay how do, how do we figure out how to keep things fair for people living in our city yeah i i see the most activity generally at at city level uh where city governments mayors are really trying to uh, take some action. If you look at the city of Barcelona, Mayor Ada Colau, um, she uh, has done a lot of different, taken a lot of different measures to uh, try to control um, these actors. She's done things like expropriating uh, buildings uh, that are vacant, um, trying to regulate Airbnb, for example. Uh, If we jump over to Amsterdam, Amsterdam has a huge um, uh, tourist population, quite a small population at, I think, 900,000, but they have 4.5 million tourists every year. Um, and Airbnb was a huge problem. One in 15 homes in Amsterdam was an Airbnb. And so um, Amsterdam declared a ban on Airbnb um, 
and Airbnb is, you know, is a big in, uh, uh, investor uh, of sorts. And uh, Airbnb pushed back and now they're litigating it out uh, in the courts. So um, there are governments that are pushing back. Lisbon has, has also tried to deal with uh, Airbnb. Vancouver imposed a vacant home tax on um, homes owned by um, investors who are using housing as a, a, for speculation. And that tax has generated a fair bit of money that has gone right back into uh, affordable housing. So, so there are, as I said, city governments are, are are taking the lead. It would seem, but then we've got the outlier of Denmark um, doing some pretty amazing things. Well, we'll see what happens going forward. Are you at least optimistic about anything that you're looking at these days in terms of okay, you know, we we've identified it because you've done such a great job doing that. Is that creating any ripple effect? Mike, I'm not sure I've been as effective as I would like to to be. I wish I was seeing more um, momentum at, at at pushing back. Um, you know, the G7 countries, for example, they got together. They they agreed that there should be a 15% um, tax on multinational corporations. You know, did they take that further step and define those multinational corporations to include multinational private equity firms investing in residential real estate? Well, not yet. And that's the kind of big, bold move that I'm hoping to see. Um, I, I, I think um, it's still not um, talked about enough and certainly not acted upon enough by governments, the whole area of the financialization of housing. I see this as being as important as climate change and integrally linked to climate change. Um, but I, I'm just not sure it's reached that currency yet. So lots more work to be done. Well, keep putting the voice to it that you are because it is so key. If anybody looks around and says, how am I going to afford this? They shouldn't be talking about housing. Leilani, thank you so much for all the time today. And again, keep up what you are doing. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Take care. That's Leilani Farah, who is Global Director of The Shift and also part of Push, the documentary, Push the Film. And again, if, if you're just joining us, here's the easiest way to picture it. If you have big corporations who are able to go in and buy buildings, and of course, there are all kinds of examples all around the world. They go in, they buy a building, they fix it up, they raise the rent. And if then you get investors in those corporations, essentially your building is being traded on the stock market. And that investment then has to do what? Make more money. How do you make more money? Well, raise the rent. And you might think, okay, well, there's got to be a threshold. Okay, maybe, but on the way to that threshold, how many people come to a point where they can't afford their housing? Look at the example of the baristas in San Francisco. None of them are living in San Francisco. You could think, no, they would they would just they'd live down the street, they'd bike to work, it would be fantastic. You know, hop on the trolley car. Fantastic. No. No, they're living a long way away. They're commuting a long way because they're not making the salary that they need in order to live downtown because the rents are too high. This is happening all over the world. And as Leilani says, if you don't have government stepping in and putting regulations on this, where does it end? Because you know what stock markets want and you know what investors want. More. How do we get more 
Keep getting more. Push it higher. They live in a world where what goes up does not come down because they don't want it to. Eventually it will, but right now it's still going up. We're lucky enough to be joined by someone who makes change on a daily basis. And he does it because he's willing to look around and say, all right, I have what I need. Does everybody else have what they need? And the answer is always no. And it's one thing to even have the ability to ask that question. It's another thing to act on it. We get to meet Costco Tom. Costco Tom, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Tom, let's talk a little bit about my sister's place to begin, because they have come to know you as Costco Tom, even though we're going to talk about cash donations and ways that we can help out. But my sister's place is something that's been helping out this community for a long time now and helping out a lot of great people in this community. Tell us a little bit about what they're doing and how they're doing that. Well, um, I... I, I started giving a donation, and, and at that point, I really hadn't planned for it to become a, a monthly thing, but it has, and it works for me, too. Uh, about two, two and a half years ago, I made a donation to my sister's place, uh, and I've learned a lot more about the organization in that time, and I've had a few different people, as I talk about it, I've had a few different people ask me, what is my sister's place? And in layman's terms, it's a day, it's a daytime shelter for people who are homeless, at risk of homelessness, have experienced uh, different traumas, have struggled with addictions or mental health. Uh, at my sister's place, uh, the women on staff and the participants build community and a a sense of belonging. It it becomes a touchstone for a lot of people. Uh, During the pandemic, they've been serving both men and women just because the need is so great. They're coordinating with other social agencies in town. And let's face it, during the pandemic, it can be tough to get funds, to get donations, to get the word out about different things, about basic needs. I mean, granola bars, bottles of water, you name it. Bananas, oranges, food, uh, and you mentioned water. I think that's uh, what brought me to your attention was water, and uh, we can get into that now or a little bit later. Well, why don't we get into it now? Because bottled water, you would think of, yeah, it's it's great, uh, but you don't necessarily realize how important it might be for someone who is experiencing homelessness how does it become so important well the reason this week earlier this week was uh my sister's place posted on their uh on their facebook page and on their twitter which they regularly update both of them and i'm on both social uh accounts uh that they were desperately short of water could really use some. I wasn't busy that day. 
I did a little research. I actually, I wasn't Costco Tom that day. I went to Walmart because it was a little bit cheaper. Uh, the staff there were fantastic. I had called ahead because it was going to be a significant amount. And they had 40 cases of 24 bottles by the front door. We rang them in. A couple of staff members came out with me and we played Jenga. And you can fit 40 cases of water in a Toyota Camry. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let, uh, let, help, help us with that math. You can fit how many in a Toyota Camry? At least 40. I think if I had tried, I might have been able to fit three, four, maybe five more, but it would have gotten awfully cramped. That's a full <laughs> trunk, a full passenger seat. The, the back seat, uh, there, there were no passengers in the car other than water. Uh, the, uh, I actually posted, or re, sorry, uh, forwarded, reposted um, my sister's place notice, and I and I mentioned that hey, if somebody wants to donate to me, give me some cash. I said I'll go and I'll buy some more. Four friends were wonderful, and uh, he, he transferred me some cash, so I went and got another forty cases the next day and delivered them. Uh, I, I've heard and I've, I've seen pictures on their page. A, a couple of other fellows at a company in town, uh, one fellow brought almost a pickup full. And you would think, and you know, back to the initial 40 cases, how long would that last, Mike? 40 cases of water. That's a, that's a lot of water. Uh, I'm thinking a couple of weeks. Three to five days at max. At max, uh, they're serving uh, in the in the what I call the before times. They served about 150 women, and of course, uh, they were able to have people inside. And when they were inside, it was not bottled water. Uh, they used uh, uh, you know massive uh, containers and reusable glasses. But unfortunately, they can't have people in in the building just yet, and probably not for, you know, another two or three months, and of course the two or three hottest months of the year. Uh, and and why it's important, dehydration is a, is a brutal thing. In normal times, you could nip into a, a restaurant, use their washer, refill your water bottle. Uh, water fountains around the city, public water fountains, have been shut down to try and combat uh, the spread of COVID. The restrictions have created an issue for people that are homeless, that are struggling, uh, and and that's why important and so important. And if we don't have water, we don't have anything. Well said. We're talking with the man that my sister's place has come to know as Costco Tom and learning more about my sister's place and some of what is going on right now deep in this pandemic. Now, Tom, you mentioned bananas, and you would think, you know, bananas, they don't last like bottled water. They, they're not going to go even three to five days sometimes. Why is it that bananas are a key thing in donations? Bananas are a wonderful fruit. Uh, they come in their own carrying case. They're easily transportable. And if you've got uh, dental issues, if you've got teeth problems. It's a very easy fruit to eat. 
oranges are another one, but bananas especially. It's a very soft fruit, and so people who are struggling with dental issues uh, can easily, easily consume bananas. And uh, you mentioned earlier granola bars. Again, a soft granola bar, it's an easy food to chew. Um, and they're over, they're up over, well over 200 towards 250 and sometimes more people per day. And uh, I would buy a couple of cases of bananas at a time. And I found out something at Costco. And the reason for Costco, Tom, I'd call in, hey, I'm headed to Costco doing a, a shopping trip for myself. What can I get for you? Well, after a couple of months, they got to recognize who this guy was on the phone, and they'd call out uh, to Sonia in the kitchen, it's Costco Tom, what do you need? What do you need today? And uh, so, but, uh, so cases of bananas, and things you learn that, group of bananas that you you and I both go and buy, that's a hand. A oh. bunch of bananas is a, is a whole bunch of hands. And a case of bananas has 13 hands in it. Who knew? Not me. Now we I, do. <laughs> not me, man. I, I, uh, a Costco cashier told me that about two months ago because I started pulling all these, all these hands of bananas out. She said, wait, was that a full case? Yes, there's 13. Okay. <laughs> hey, Tom, what's okay. it been like to develop this relationship with an organization like My Sister's Place? I think I get more out of it than they do. There's something called a helper's high, and it's just whenever I leave after dropping off, whether it's 40 cases of water, gosh, they need more water today, and they're going to need it tomorrow, and they're going to need it on Monday. As I leave, I feel I feel good. Not self-righteous, but I just I feel good. A helper's high. During the worst part of the pandemic, um, and we're not out of the woods yet, but we think we see a light uh, at the end of the tunnel. During the worst part of the pandemic, I did cash donations monthly just because limit my trips out, uh, limit contact, and they were limiting con uh, any uh, uh, gifts gifts in kind, I think it's called. Uh, they were only taking cash donations at that point just to try and be as responsible as possible. Absolutely. We're talking with Costco Tom, and you can go to my sister's place and you know their their website for sure their facebook page uh their twitter page updated regularly if you have any questions my sister's place at cmha middlesex.ca we have all of this information in studio as well and you would find there that they accept donations weekdays at the back gate from two until four or you can call the welcome desk when you arrive and we've got that information as well tom this this is great. This is what makes a community as good as it can be. Thank you for what you are doing, and thank you for sharing what you are doing with us. Thank you, Mike. Um, I, I don't feel like I do a lot. I've got one other thing that I wanted to tell you about. As far as funding for My Sister's Place, uh, it's about 50% funded by the government. Uh, the rest 
comes from members of our community, whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's a small business that's helping out, uh, people who, who believe in the work they're doing. And in these times, in these incredibly tough times, we've got to look after each other. We've got to look after especially the most vulnerable members of our society. The mark of a society is is reflected by how they treat the most vulnerable members of the society. Uh, stuff like shampoo. And there's been months where, Tom, we need shampoo. Shampoo, razors, deodorant, underwear. Uh, um, uh, and again, there's right now, because of the situation we find ourselves in, they are busier than they have ever been. They're uh, instead of the normal, normal, that's a weird word, normal 150 or so people that they uh, feed a, a nutritious, wonderful lunch. I've seen pictures again on their Facebook and Twitter pages. Man, I could go for a couple of those. Uh, uh, nutritious, healthy lunches. Uh, instead of 150, they're putting out 200 and 250 and they're, they're, we we are a community. We're a, we're a city that is showing this week during the most brutal times uh, that there is a lot of heart in this city. We've got to look after each other. Well said. Tom, thanks for spending some time with us, and keep being you, all right? Thank you, Mike. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to me, and I'll keep trying to do my best. Costco Tom joining us simply looks and says, hey, I'm off to wherever it is, in most cases Costco. What do you guys need? And you can check that out at my sister's place on their website. You can check it out on their Facebook page, follow them, and you can get updates. And it is making a major difference because of some of the added issues that do exist in, as Tom outlined, for bottles of water, not being able to refill in a tap and a washroom, not being able to refill at a water fountain, not being able to find certain things. It's uh, it's something that has kind of been going on in behind the scenes, thanks to Tom for allowing us to bring it to the forefront. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.